welcome to a special Christmas episode of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. This is episode 29, and we're back for another franchise review. And if you want to blame someone for this one, you're going to have to blame Nathan Bartleball, because I think this one emerged after the last time we talked. It was like, what, uh, 11, 30, 12 at night and uh, came up with a brilliant idea of doing Silent Night, Deadly Night. So, uh, Nathan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And I think it was my idea. To be fair, I think that I was trying to steer you off of, of a full moon yeah. or something. So, I mean, it wasn't, I guess, got desperate and grabbed the title out of the air. And it was it was heading into Christmas, so I thought that this would be fun. And honestly, I hadn't seen many of these movies, so I figured out either way, it would be a, an opportunity to catch up with the series. No, it makes sense. And I'm being facetious there. This isn't the worst series of movies at all and uh, the other one might have been so who knows but um we're here to do six films and silent silent night deadly night we'll do all five of the first the original and the sequels and then the loose remake from 2012 i believe but yeah i i guess unless you have anything to start with do you want to launch into talking about the first one since we've got a lot to cover tonight yeah, absolutely. And I'm here with my like seasonal beer. My <laughs> wife gave me this essentially it's like an advent calendar. But it's really just a giant box with about 24 beers wrapped in paper, which is awesome. And this is the naughty or nice cold IPA from Devil's Backbone. And it's got a a deer wearing a lampshade on its head. And <laughs> there's a cat wrapped up in, in Christmas wrapping. So don't know if any of that is is that seasonal but whatever yeah i'm i'm excited i'm excited to uh to talk about this series and i'm excited to uh kind of have a christmas episode we have some coming up on phantom galaxy but this is to actually this is technically the second christmas episode i've recorded for any podcast this year because uh some friends have me on but it's it's fun doing these sort of all throughout the month as you lead up to christmas but i am excited and we do have we have a lot of movies to talk about yeah and I've never I never would have thought in a million years I would have done a Christmas episode. And I think this is just the way this is kind of lining up that it works out perfectly. But um, yeah, here we are. And I know there are some people who absolutely love this franchise. Brian Scott, for one, I know is a fan of at least the first couple. But I'm just going to set up just a couple of little factoids, Nathan, and then we can launch into setting up this first movie. So this was written by a Harvard University student, actually. And it was a short story originally titled He Sees You When You're Sleeping. Which is, you know, interesting. I don't think that would I I'm curious as to what that short story is and how much of that made it into this movie, um, because I don't think there's any actually Santa watching people sleep in this movie. So that's a little bit of a letdown right there. <laughs> <laughs> we need that in more movies. Exactly. Like that sleep type movie. No, it's not Christmas, though. Let's stay on track, Trey. So then the film's working title was actually changed. It was Sleigh Ride when it was in production. So this has been known. I like that better. Yeah, yeah. But it's S-L-A-Y, of course. I assumed, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but a real interesting thing, Nathan, here is when they were planning this film, the producer, executive producer, wanted to have like this new young director. They wanted the next John Carpenter to direct this movie. And they were looking at Sam Raimi and they were looking at a couple other directors that were younger. Well, TriStar 
thought, you know, it would be much better to have a TV producer to direct this thing. And um, TriStar won out, and we ended up with Charles E. Seller Jr. directing this, who was most known for producing the TV series The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. So it it all kind of makes sense putting this into perspective. But the last thing I want to talk about is the just the controversy that came out around this thing. This movie was in theaters for an entire week before it was pulled. People were upset. Now, leading up to release, they didn't think they were going to have any problem with the killer Santa angle. And they really planned their release strategically because what they thought they'd have a problem with was the portrayal of the Catholic Church. So they planned to roll this out in the Midwest, which was mostly Protestant, and then they would roll it out into Catholic areas, namely the Northeast, later on, to kind of take the heat off of it a little bit. Well, ended up not working out too well. They pulled it after a week, but the thing still made $2.5 million in a week, which is pretty successful for a film made for less than a million dollars. That's kind of how we got to... Yeah, yeah. it outgrossed uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. It was the same day. Um, well, it's it's interesting that they thought, well, this was their reasoning, because Christmas Evil had already come out, which that's an interesting one that I watched just today on your recommendation, Nathan. And I think the story behind Christmas Evil is I don't even think that movie was seen by very many people for you know until the 2000s yeah i think it had from what i hear because on the the commentary on christmas evil uh which is there's a fun commentary where the director sits down with both the main actor brandon maggart and he does one which is some of john waters which is a (laughs) lot of fun to listen to and waters has some crazy things to say about the movie but he i think he implies that that film uh, even though it was technically released, it didn't really, it, it, it's, it, it wasn't released in any kind of way that made much of a splash until a few years later. Right. Uh, and so it trying to compare and say, oh, well, we're in the clear because, you know, way back in 1972 <laughs> or whatever, Tales from the Crypt had a segment about a Santa just at the very beginning and that this and in Christmas Evil came out and didn't raise a bunch of hackles and we're, we're, we're smooth sailing. And those two, those two are very, very different. One's an anthology horror film uh, that's kind of got British prestige on it. And Christmas evil. I mean, we're not here to discuss that movie, but that movie's much more of a kind of psychological thriller and it's violence is very muted. I would say. Yeah. So you have to wonder what the produced and those that came from producers at TriStar. So you had to wonder, they're just, probably grasp it at straws at that point. They don't really have a good grasp of what's going to happen when they released it, but it did gain a cult following and it. I mean, it was successful at the box office that one week it was out. So it led to several sequels. Uh, is there anything else you want to say on that before we go into kind of the um, synopsis and everything? Uh, no, not too much, except to say, you know, I think that, you know, the reason they didn't expect to make, I don't think what they were expecting or anticipating was that the backlash would be so centered on the fact that they had a killer Santa. Right. And I, I sort of agree with that. Uh, although that's sort of the, the schlock angle they're going for, right? They want people to go in the theater so they can see someone like a, like a Santa kill people. And I know that the, uh, the one thing I do want to mention, because it will actually 
be of a note later is that one of the many people that came out against this movie was Mickey Rooney, which I don't know why <laughs> Mickey Rooney has a stake in it or, or has some sort of voice that's going to be recognized in terms of, of crapping on a, a slasher film that involves Santa, but he came out and he was like, people should be ashamed of themselves and that the people who made this movie should be run out of town on a rail. And, you know, those, those words are important to remember later on, but yeah, Mickey <laughs> Rooney comes out again, choosing to make a statement against this movie. I don't know what's what significance or when he would have been in a situation where it would be necessary to hear Mickey Rooney like weigh in on this. But yeah, yeah I mean, all the major critics at the time, they didn't just like, say it was awful they were like i think uh, gene siskel looked in the camera and said shame on you yeah yeah <laughs> to the, to the producers <laughs> of the film so oh he read the names of the production crew and then he said shame on you <laughs> yeah real cool gene <laughs> it's an interesting thing like i just picture mickey rooney out there picketing outside of the movie theater on on release day <laughs> yeah did someone call him up you know who we need to find out about on this mickey rooney <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, it it led to where it led. So we have movies to talk about tonight because of that. I'm going to go ahead and set this one up, Nathan, then we can launch into our thoughts. So Silent Night, Deadly Night was released in 1984. And the synopsis reads, Little Billy witnesses his parents being brutally murdered by Santa. Years later, when he has to fill in for an absent in-store Santa Claus, his childhood trauma materializes once again. So I think, first and foremost, Billy is much more justified than, say, you know, that kid in pieces who murdered his mom because she took away his nudie puzzle. He has some <laughs> <laughs> he has some real trauma here, right? And he has some real things really through his whole life. And I think that's what the majority of the beginning of this film. And by the way, we will probably get into some kind of spoilers Incidentally, we're not trying to spoil anything, but in the terms of talking about this, I warned you on the Critters episode, we'll probably get into something here, too. But the way this movie starts, it's mostly showing you what has led up to how he became afraid of Santa Claus and all these different things in his life that has shaped his kind of trauma. So what are your initial thoughts on Silent Night, Deadly Night, Nathan? It's so sleazy, uh, <laughs> but I mean, that's my initial thought. There's a couple things that I didn't see this movie when it came out or any, which it would have been good because I would only been about like, you know, three years old, but, uh, or no, at 84, I was older. I was five or six, but, the, but I remember for most of my childhood hearing about these, this film and actually because of the nature of this backlash where everyone just knew about it, but no, very few, very few of the people railing against it had actually seen it. I heard all kinds of things. My parents told me it was about a like a mentally handicapped man that was killing people, Santa, which I thought was really messed up. And I mean, you know, there, there's definitely some stuff going on with Billy in this film. But like I heard all sorts of things about what this movie was. And a lot of the slashers that came out in the 80s, I didn't see in the 80s. I didn't see till later. And a lot of times I would end up seeing them and thinking, oh, you know what? That's actually this is a much better made movie or much it has some merit to it and it isn't just what the critics are saying it is. Uh, now, regardless of what you think about silent night, deadly night, I don't think you could actually argue, take, take the judgment part of it, but everything that Siskel and Ebert and all and Leonard Malton, these people say about the film itself, not 
poo-pooing the producers, but oh, it's, you know, it's sleazy, it's mean-spirited, it goes over the top and just kills Christmas spirit. I mean, it absolutely does all those things. <laughs> I, the question just becomes, what kind of mood are you when you see this movie? Because this is definitely the, in the pantheon of Christmas movies, this is a bah humbug movie. And a lot of Christmas horror films, uh, even Christmas Evil from a few years before, they they still find a way to sort of bring Christmas spirit or the concept of Christmas as this positive thing that should unite us into the story, right? Like movies like Krampus and, and, and mm-hmm. Gremlins. They all find a way to make Christmas a positive force, even if the film is a horror film. But not this movie. <laughs> this movie does have balls on it because it just straight up goes for the jugular. It is a pessimistic Christmas movie all the way through that finds Santa a damaging presence and Santa and connects Santa to the Catholic church and shows how that's a damaging presence. And the funny thing about all these different pieces of trauma that they show Billy going through, any one of them would probably been enough to give him a fear of Santa Claus. Yeah. Starting with his grandfather, giving that really weird and sort of, prophet of doom speech from his <laughs> from his chair there i mean this is why we only see grandpa once a year guys uh because he says stuff like this and but then it's such overkill to have what happens on the road and you know santa's now like raping and killing your mother in front of you and they just lay it on so thick and everything happens to him i mean this movie would almost be a christmas would have Christmas connections without the Santa because it feels almost Dickensian, right? It's, you know, you've got orphans and you've got uh, mistreatment and you've got put upon characters that have the weight of the world smashed upon their heads. And all of that, that, that backstory part is what kind of sets the movie apart because it is seedy. It feels very, uh, when I eventually saw movies like Friday the 13th and, and many of the films that Wes Craven directed, including Nightmare on Elm Street and, you know, a lot of the movies he made in the 80s. The first thing you recognize is, oh, wait, these are a much they, these have a bigger budget behind them than what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. This film may have been released by TriStar, but it feels very low budget, very uh, indie and and again, very gritty and grimy. Like it still has the to me, it doesn't feel like a big budget production. I don't know that it really was a big budget production. And so it has a lot of rough edges to it. Now, I, I, I'm not here trying to like crap on anybody's uh, holiday here. I am not a huge, huge fan of this movie. I don't think honestly that it's a classic or that it's a gem per se. I do think it's a pretty fun slasher movie, but it's fun because it's mean spirited. There's a certain point where I don't connect with its story, but I like just about, Half of the things I like about this movie are are almost like incidental because it sort of is a bad movie. You know, that some of the things it does are inept, and in its ineptitude, I'm sort of fascinated by it. And I am, I do connect with a lot of the like pessimistic, cynical attitude towards Christmas. I don't want to, I don't always say want a movie that's full of that from beginning to end. But I feel like the whole movie could be summed up in a scene where there's a frustrated and and traumatized child wriggling on Santa's lap and he just sucker punches him <laughs> and knocks him into the Christmas tree. This whole movie is like a sucker punch to Christmas's face, like bam. So uh, and if you think according to the if you follow the lore of Santa and you you take into account that he was once a saint that actually punched somebody out, 
that makes sense. That keeps uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night. It does have a few uh, honest things to say about <laughs> Santa Claus then. I mean, it's a fun movie, but it's a seedy movie. Yeah, I think so. Where a lot of this comes from is I think it feels like an after dark TV movie. Like it's it's definitely low budget. I think it was like 750000 for this. And you've got someone who's worked in TV directing this thing there's all kinds of fade to black cuts and you really do feel the budget like this was a TV movie that somehow got like an unrated cut on VHS or something. Right. Someone stole the master and said, here it is. (laughs) Exactly. But that's my first kind of issue with this movie. Cause I want to get that out of the way first is that it does feel very much at times like a TV movie. There's that terrible song when he gets the job in the hardware store, that montage that goes on with that awful song. <laughs> and I don't, we have to talk about the music yeah. at one point because the music is definitely a defining. Feature yes. Of the film. But it's like you said, it's he's had so many subsequent things like happen to him that caused trauma in his life, but he's almost like he's not out there to try to hurt anyone. You know, if he didn't grow up in a Catholic orphanage after his parents had passed away, you know, if he grew up with a family member or something, maybe things change for him without people forcing him to get on Santa's lap and telling him he's bad for not wanting to sit on Santa's Beating lap. him regularly, letting yeah. them, letting him watch while they uh, chastise people having sex. Oh, yeah, that, that scene. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> Like grandpa, yeah, you can shrug off grandpa. Like everyone's got a crazy grandpa, I'm sure, at one point that has said one or two things to them. I actually like that scene. I think it's I think it's part of a black humor in this film that I don't think is intentional. Yeah, yeah. Uh I don't know, but I think some of it is. I think the I I wouldn't be surprised if some of these elements were directly related to the short story or or when the writer was given the opportunity to flesh it out there's that scene there's a scene where the cops shoot a blind man <laughs> dressed as santa claus to death and i think that those scenes were 100 percent created with the sense of f you christmas yes absolutely and we'll get into that scene later in a uh, part two as well but yeah they just sh- <laughs> oh they shot father whatever he's blind oh man i i don't know it's just like this poor guy obviously has some things he's worked he's been through and people are constantly just the you know the scenarios are lining up just right for him to get the optimal amount of trauma like sit on santa's lap now you have to you know you're working in this store you're trying to get your life together he's the uriah heap of slasher characters it's like here you go we need you to fill in for this santa at the store like that's a good idea and it's almost like he's had this warped reality his whole life. And he's been taught things in this orphanage. Like, you know, like you said, chastising the two that are getting it on there in the, in the locked door. And uh, yeah, the poor guy just can't catch a break. He's almost like a Norman Bates type character. Like he didn't ask him to come to him. Like, but I, as far as like the classic, you were talking about it, classic status. I think it's classic in the sense of for a long time, I don't think we had a ton of Christmas horror movies. Um, and I think this was always one of the ones that stood out, but I don't think quality wise, I would call it a classic. I think it's fun. I like some things about it, but I wouldn't come out and say, you know, this is one of the must watches that you need to see. Yeah. Although, and that being said, I totally see why people like, 
get into it and and enjoy it because it is sort of that flipping flipping the bird kind of movie, right? It's yeah. Like, you know, they released that Grinch movie. What was the song? Where are you, Christmas? But if this movie had what well, has many songs, but it had a song like that, it would be Christmas. You're an asshole, like, right? Like, <laughs> and what is interesting and intriguing, and whether you agree with the film's message or not, that you have, and and it sort of comes all the way through this series. It keeps popping back up that one of the reasons there was a backlash to say, you know, the people didn't think, Oh, who cares about Santa? He's not real. But I think a lot of people do to, as you've seen in recent years of people are like the war on Christmas and Santa's a part of that. They tie Santa to God in a certain way. And Santa is like, in some sense, I think you could make the case of, from the, per, the people who've created this film perspective seems to be that the santa idea which is very much a works-based those sort of scenario right you're either good and he's going to reward you or you're bad and he's going to punish you and they tie that view and but what does santa do in between does he does he does he really can he uh intervene in any other way and so it's like a training wheels for kids to, to ease them into a later on a belief in god you know it's easy you're santa claus and now there's god and then the church comes into that and the church is preaching to him, to this kid. They're showing this church, the Catholic church, showing him the same sort of message. And so the movie does end up being very anti-Catholic yeah. in its perspective and its mindset, because it essentially says that a person beaten over the head with this, uh, when, when a person is forced to literalize these ideas and concepts and it is, they're forced to acknowledge them at the face value that perhaps not even the religious practitioners do it will make you crazy and maybe you'll end up chopping some guy's head off with an ax when he slides down a hill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing though. It's like, it's completely after he's done with that store, like what happens to him there after he snaps, everything else is kind of just tangent. It's kind of just off on its own, right? There's no rhyme or reason to who he's going after. It's just, if you're there, he's going after you. If he perceives you to be doing something naughty, um, he's kind of just going hog wild. And I town. think that's the movie TriStar thought they were getting completely. Like that's, that's the movie the money was dumped for was here's a movie where Santa runs around and just kills people. And I think had it been that movie, then a, it actually would be less interesting. I will give the movie that I don't think it's deeply interesting now, uh, personally, but I think that without all of Billy's sort of overly dramatic, neo-Gothic <laughs> backstory, <laughs> I don't know if it was because the kill scenes are fun, but they don't really amount to a whole lot. I don't think. No, most of them are very pedestrian. And I that's I think the missed opportunity is when I first watched this, I thought I was going to get more of that kind of stuff. And I think if we got more of that, it could be more fun. I don't necessarily think you need to change a whole lot. I mean, story wise, what I would change is I would like to see more of the relationship between sister Margaret and, um, Billy, because that seemed like it was pretty. I would have just liked to see that as him having some kind of light in his life. But no, that's not what this movie is. But yeah, some of these are pretty unsatisfying. If you write out on paper, you know, kids sledding down the hill. He stole this sled from another kid. That's Santa a good one. comes out and he's going to chop his head off. But you don't really get the payoff that you're looking for in that scene, though, do you? I, not really, but it's still a good scene. It is. Yeah, it is. And yeah, it, and it kind of comes out of nowhere, but you know, something's going to happen because why would we have this build up for nothing? But yeah, I do really like that scene, too. Uh, 
Okay. Do you want to you want to get in and talk about this uh, this music here, Nathan? So I do think like the setup of the film, the way the movie is set up and the way it kind of leads you into and creates this alternate world where you're going to they're trying to give you some Christmas feelings, but they kind of want to make sure that all of those feelings are are kind of sarcastic, bad feelings in a sense. Like you're supposed to smile and enjoy, but from the same thing. Uh, that perspective of when you hear those earworm like 50s tunes over and over again you can't get them your head the stuff you hear in the department store and you're just like can't christmas be over already this opening song the morgan ames song that's that's santa's santa's watching song yeah that has some of the greatest lyrics like uh, there's one point you know um santa knows if you've been bad or, and and i think it says have you been good this year it's too late now because santa's here like <laughs> i think there's a bit that just says santa's watching santa's creeping now you're nodding now you're sleeping i mean yeah the lyrics are great but the song itself is like awful right <laughs> like the well, musical... I, but i love the way the song is done <laughs> because it's got the doo-wop kind of stuff going on in the background the i love i actually love the song i think the song is genius i think the song makes the movie i i, I like I, my i've let my kids listen to the song not they've not seen the film and i actually a few years ago when we we were doing an episode of this of the of phantom galaxy and this was one of the movies we chose i opened the podcast with a little bit of that song because of just how i think it is great <laughs> i think that it's it it captures the perfect sort of cheese it's the one moment of the movie i think where everything is like firing on that cylinders of the bah humbug christmas movie and it's just about right that and a new opening with the old man. So I think the song and and there's more songs like that throughout the movie. Now, you're right. They become of a less endearing quality as they go along. They do. This is the thing I want to say about this movie. And I kind of love it with these early Santa films. I actually think Christmas Evil, which is almost more like the taxi driver of Christmas horror movies, uh, more of a more of a psychological drama. And and Brandon Maggart in that movie is giving actually a really good sort of textured performance. I think that's a much better movie than this one. But the thing I love about both of these movies is they do capture, which I which almost can now only be grasped by looking at those old Polaroids from when you were growing up. They capture that kind of seedy, gross, like uh, department store, back of a convenience store. <laughs> when you go to see Santa, like that grimy '80s feel, you know, yeah. where you've got the like really gross, like beige-looking, like Christmas parties with the record player in the corner, and and the the department store that just is, you know, it looks like everything's covered in like dust and sweat, <laughs> and that feeling that vibe of like christmas is supposed to be bright and colorful and cheerful and it's like christmas gone to seed and i like that vibe that the movie has and it's wrapped up in that song too because the song sounds cheerful and uh campy and kitschy and then what they're saying is like you know you're, you're gonna be punished children there's nothing you can do it's not not gonna be fun and games for bad children <laughs> Which is at the heart of the Santa story. Nobody thinks about it. Yeah. So you talk about all that, but we've got, I think you're right with the feeling. I now listen, personally, I don't really care for this type of music. I do love the lyrics of Santa's creeping. And I think the idea of Santa's creeping is really cool. I'm not as big of a fan as the song as you are, but that's okay. Well, well let me, let me just make one quick yeah. statement about that. I don't think this is not a song. I would sit here and listen to regular my car. I don't think this is the number one hit but i actually am not a huge fan 
of Christmas music in general. So I think the fact that the song is sort of a bad, crappy song is part of the song's charm. Like it's that disposable thing that someone threw together to capture a vibe. And it's like, it's just a little crappy jingle. Okay. Yeah. I get where you're coming from there because yeah, I, I can see, I mean, and I get you there when you're out in those department stores, I worked in retail for a little bit. When you're listening to those Christmas songs, when they start to come on, you just start to groan because you know, it's going to be there forever. And in that sense, I think you're right. I think they did capture the perfect kind of sound while still having that tongue in cheek nature. So I'll, I'll give you that Nathan, but um, you wanted to, you said mentioned earlier about the comparison about, you know, Christmas evil being the taxi driver to this. I think a lot of that has to do with the cast and them not really being any kind of seasoned actors. I don't think any of them really had anything outside of like a TV role or something. Yeah. And I think that as we go through the series and you're going to see that in just a moment that when a movie, a schlock movie, it either, you know, it can be benefited from having a good surprise performance. I think like Maggart in Christmas evil and actually a lot of the actors, there's Jeffrey DeMunn and a lot of different actors that show up that have some chops. And so it actually kind of puts it surprises you because you're not when the movie starts, you're not expecting that or you get uh, acting so profoundly terrible <laughs> that it boosts the experience for you. But this is sort of middle down the road, like they're serviceable. Yeah, but they don't in any way sort of like they don't bring it home. And sometimes they are just at that risable level where they're just at a level where some of the scenes end up. But they, in a way, I think that makes this movie feel creepier. Like it feels more disturbing because of its lack of polish and the, and, and, and the way the characters behave, there's something sort of like, do you know what I mean? Like there's something discomforting about it. I know exactly what you mean. I think they do pretty good for not having much acting experience at all when you're comparing it to what it could have been, like you're saying, but yeah, the, the movie just does like you're, you've been saying this whole time. It's got this grimy feel. It's got a, a gross feel. It's got like, um, I don't want to compare it to something like um, Henry portrait of a serial killer, (laughs) because I think that's on a completely different level. Yeah. But you kind of get a little bit of vibe of that, of like something that's uh, maybe kind of grindhouse. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Something that makes you feel just a little bit unsettled at least. Um, Now for me, I think several parts of this script in this movie have some good, humor value for me anyway. I don't know if everyone gets any of that out of it, but like the grandpa scene and some of the scenes later on, I'm like, okay, that's pretty good, (laughs) but but I don't know. Oh, and I completely forgot that scene where he's actually being the Santa and he's talking to the little girl who won't calm down on his lap and he's like (laughs) threatening her over and over again of what he's going (laughs) to do to her. And and those scenes are funny and they do sort of ask this question of like, going to take your kid out here and put him on a stranger's lap and then we all we wonder why they cry yeah exactly and and the and the movie kind of keeps feeling like that it's like this expose on like why christmas is a weird thing this is a weird tradition that we have well we tell kids to stay away from strangers right and then yeah and if you came from another planet showed up and watched us do this particular holiday tradition it would seem sort of barbaric or sort of weird and strange. And I think that's really, it's not simply, Hey, we're going to, you know, shock value here, Santa slashing people. It's this, it really is going for going for the gut. It's, it's just trying to grab his beard and yank it off. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. But 
Uh, Nathan, what else do you have on this one? Is there anything else you want to talk about before we move on? Not really. I mean, we sh- we have to because I think anyone who's listening to this, who, I think fans of the movie probably like they like all the things we've talked about. Mm-hmm. But I think they like the kills too, and the bit with the 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 the, the antlers. Oh yeah, yeah, we didn't like that. that's a good kill. Those scenes. If you were looking for a grimy, you know, slasher movie that does it, it you know does go the distance with its Santa killer. That's one thing that a lot of people I know who like this movie, but don't care as much for Christmas evil is they were expecting a Santa killer movie out of Christmas evil. Right. That's not really what that movie is at all. It, it does, it does get there sort of, but I wouldn't say that's the movie that's going to give you the, like that, the, that cover image of this film of the Santa hand with the ax coming out of the chimney. I mean, this movie does give you that it for the for what it says it sets out to do. I think it does it about as well as the resources and everything allow it to be. I still don't think it's a great movie, but I totally get why people enjoy it. And there's not much I can say in its defense or against it in that regard. You know, it's mm-hmm. sort of it is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. It is what it is. And we can only enjoy it as much as we enjoy that type of thing. Right. And. Yeah. Uh, for for me personally, I mean, my drawback is that I did want more. I wanted them to go maybe a little bit further into why he's and for the budget they made this. I mean, you can't really do a whole lot more of like a slasher, but that's that's what was missing for me is either go full bore slasher, which I think there are some good kills, like you mentioned with the antlers and all that stuff. But uh, it was missing a little bit of that for me to go see it as a full on slasher, everything else about the movie. I mean, yeah, you can feel the TV budget here and there. It is what it is with the sleaziness and everything else. But I don't really have any complaints, real complaints. I don't have any really real things that I love about it. It's just kind of a decent movie that I do enjoy watching. It's just not a favorite for me. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's about where I am. All right. So where would you come in at a rating on this, Nathan? I've been going back and forth and, you know, I think I, I feel pretty comfortable giving this one a, for me, it's a 6.5. It's a solid fun schlock movie, but it doesn't, it's not one that honestly, like it's not on my, I want to see this every year in Christmas horror movies. Now for me, Christmas evil is on there and gremlins and even Krampus, you know, those movies, I will, I like all of those movies a bit more than this one. I think this one, if you haven't seen this movie and you want to see it, I don't think that this one, and we're going to talk about the sequel in a moment. I don't think, like many of the Silent Night, Deadly Night movies, I don't think they benefit from you sitting down kind of in the dark by yourself watching this movie and like focusing on it in the way, you know, like you would if you're sitting down to watch The Exorcist or something. This is get a bunch of people together and have a, have a horror movie themed Christmas night and watch it with a group of people that's that's on that wavelength don't don't let them think they're sitting down to watch you know like it's a wonderful life make sure you know <laughs> if you've got a bunch of people like-minded people with some pizza and some beer and you're ready to watch some schlock movies i think that's the way this one's best enjoyed in a group because there are moments that work better when you're sort of laughing at them there are more moments when you can look over and be like oh my gosh that just happened you know it's that's probably why that the it, people going out to see it those those first weeks they went where were they going because they were told not to see it. Well, this movie so bad. What's so bad about it? That that's probably what was the best way to see this movie. And this would be a perfect drive-in movie if you can you know you get your winter coat on and you go see Silent Night, Deadly Night. 
it's that kind of movie. And in that, so that 6.5 rating, uh, I think to me, details and describes to you what kind of movie was actually made. But for the people who are into this thing, maybe it's an 8.5 or whatever, you know, the enjoyment you get out of it. But I think that would be my recommendation. If you if you haven't seen the movie and you want to see it, get a group of people together that like this sort of kind of movie and watch it that way. It's much, you're going to, you're going to have a better time. This is not uh, sit down and analyze it. I might've referenced Charles Dickens, but don't take that as the best milepost for how to enjoy silent night, deadly night. But here's the thing. I think with you giving it a 6.5 in the spirit of Christmas, I think I'm going to bump up my rating a half point to, uh, you're just doing that. So you keep the, <laughs> keep the, the, the tradition going of you're always a half point higher than I am. No, you know I'm what? We were locked in for critters pretty much. So yeah, uh, yeah fair I'm going to go ahead and give this one a seven. I'll bump it up for my 6.5. Uh, there's nothing I can really say about this. I think, like you said, if you haven't seen it, I think it's a good Christmas horror movie. It's nothing that's going to, you know, it's not the night sitter for sure, but <laughs> uh, you know, three people will get that because they've seen this, but uh, no, my thing is like, I agree with you completely. Like gremlins, that kind of stuff is on a much higher level for me that I'm going to watch it more and more every year. Silent night, deadly night might be something I watch every uh, five or 10 years or so around Christmas time. I just don't watch a lot of Christmas horror, but I think you can do a lot worse than silent night, deadly night. And there's a lot of fun to be had this. And the certain, the certain type of person who loves slashers and stuff, Brian Scott, especially uh, like a Greg Amortis, they're going to love this movie. If you have those kind of sensibilities. So I'd absolutely say pick up. I'd even say pick up because I do own it. The that's a Scream Factory one, right? The Blu-ray for this one. It is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say pick up that one because it's got a cool cover and everything. But that's all I have to say on Silent Night, Deadly Night. Do you want to go ahead and we'll move into Silent Night, Deadly Night 2? Which. I think a, you know, not really a fun fact, but I think the main fact about this one is just that it was supposed to just be like a trick people into thinking it was a new movie or um, think people it was a re-release, like a new version of the original movie when it came out. And I, I think that showed in the box office. That's half true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because they used 30 minutes of stock footage for this. And um, I, I think like this thing made like a hundred thousand dollars at the box office or something. So you know what that means. It's going straight to video from here. But the thing with Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, let me go ahead and set up a summary, Nathan, and then we can just dive into it. So this was directed by Lee Harry, and it was released in 1987. Synopsis says, oh, wait a minute, I got to read this tagline. The nightmare is about to begin again. That's a very fitting tagline. After being traumatized by his brother Billy's murderous rampage years earlier, Ricky Caldwell has become a serial killer himself and is now living in a mental hospital. Relating his story to a psychiatrist, Ricky recounts the details of their murder spree and vows to avenge his brother's death. <sighs> Let's put this out of the way right at the beginning, Nathan. My problem with this movie, and I don't really have a problem with this movie. I'm not like I hate this movie. It's just not much of a movie. You've got 30 minutes of stock footage where you've got this brother character basically 
just recounting everything that happened, the major beats of the first film. And in between, he's just giving his kind of talking points and analysis. I would say it's fair to say that the first 45 minutes is just that, right? Oh, yeah. No, this is straight up. This is this is the level of like when Toho's like our Godzilla suit's not in great shape. So we're going to recycle most of this movie. Exactly. This is that level. In fact, the Godzilla movies would look at this and be like, wow, <laughs> we should be doing this. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is this is to a degree where it almost feels like it would be justified if they fully remade it because they sort of do remake it at points. They change certain facts and things. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it it's very bizarre. Uh, but I think it gives the movie a very specific identity because it recycles so much of the previous film. But then the other weird part of it is that the movie, the fresh stuff, the material exists is so poorly done it calls into question like, well, what happened? Did you get rid of a lot of this? Or, or you know, it, it, it creates a very weird tone for the movie. Yeah, you know, they did change some stuff like, you know, the blind priest was now a blind janitor. <laughs> it's, it, it's Who hires a blind janitor? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. But in no know, offense there, it's not a I mean, no, no, no. It's just like uh, you'd have to have a you know, you wouldn't be able to see the dirt you're cleaning up, right? Is the is the main argument, but yeah, it's so weird. It's such a weird thing. And I'm not mad at this movie. Like I've seen films that are, you know, not even as bad as this, that I dislike a lot more. It's just so interesting the way they've set this movie up and the way they put it together. And you've got things like, you know, he's recounting his memories as a baby sitting in the car while his brother's cowering in the woods and his, you know, his dad's getting murdered and his mom's getting sexually assaulted by Santa. And somehow he remembers that and he's got trauma from it too. So it's he remembers it because they have all these nice, well-produced clips from the last movie. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and now to be fair, to be completely fair to that point, you're right. That's a gaffe, but look at a movie like blade where similarly we see blade, uh, being basically pulled from his mother's womb after she's been attacked by a vampire and he and she dies. And yet, you know, years later, he's like, hey, mom, I know you. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But that movie had a bigger, way big, bigger budget than Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. Absolutely. But yeah, so I'm not mad at this movie, Nathan. What do you have to say out about it? <laughs> so this is this is one of those. I mean, we had to get out of the point that this movie's basically sort of like infamous bad this is that uh, there are very few movies i think that are like truly the so bad it's good i mean to mm -hmm. me a movie is usually if it's so bad it's bad uh there are fun bad movies out there to watch but you never lose sight of the fact that they're bad and sometimes you watch them completely ironically you know and where you're detached from them i'm i don't objectively speaking give this movie a very high rating it is a lot it, it, in terms of even its competency as a film it's several leagues below even the last film. And I think you and I were both agreeing and saying, hey, you know what? That last movie kind of felt had TV movie. It was amateurish in a lot of ways. But the the, the, the filmmaking in this one is a, a, a staggering come down, I think, in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah. that being said, it's not entirely... It comes from a very weird place. It's, it's sometimes you feel, this is the way I felt, all the equipment's there, all of the technical pieces are there, but it's as if you invited aliens to come down <laughs> and and make a film based on, like I said earlier, like imagine someone had never seen Christmas before and this is what they saw. It's like, well, now make a movie about that. 
and show me what it is like to direct people. And and this and then Eric Freeman. I think this movie would be possible. No, not impossibly. This movie would be unsalvageable. This would be a movie completely forgotten to time. And had you gotten anyone that was even mildly competent as the character that's recounting all of that material. But Eric Freeman comes in, and this is not a knock on the guy, because, I mean, he's he makes the movie in a... It, 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 as surely as Anthony Hopkins makes a movie with his, <laughs> with, with his acting choices, Eric Freeman makes this movie with his acting choices. A part of that is because his acting choices, to me, are 100% inexplicable. Yeah. There's a mystery at the heart of this film, and it's like, what is he doing? Like, why did he decide to do it that way? But... In doing that, he actually juices the movie. He gives you some interest for these sequences where you're watching them just rehash the last movie. He makes them watchable because of what he's doing. And you're like, what is up with this guy? Like, to me, it's fascinating. And it's even fascinating, in my personal opinion, beyond the sense of a train wreck. Because there's a story there. And what is he doing with the story? And so... That part keep kept me basically interested. Now I have to I have to confess I did absolutely watch this movie with a room full of people on a where we do a regular bad Christmas horror movie night and we watch this movie and when I watched this I had never seen the first film so that first half didn't feel like rehash to me because I didn't know it but now I see yeah that's they, they totally just took it and did it all over again so. If you have to see one of these two Silent Night Deadly Nights, I don't know, maybe two is the one to see. Because <laughs> when you get to the back half of the film and you get to Freeman when he now is sort of picking up the mantle, uh, which is, I guess, is what's happening. And like the garbage day line. He just, you know, that entire scene, the way that scene is cut and done. Like this movie probably should have been just called Garbage Day. It would have covered, <laughs> would have had multiple connotations and all would have worked. But there's a scene in the theater, like there's a murder scene in the theater and it is just... It's kind of staggeringly weird, but it's not, it's not just I'm laughing at it or I'm engaging because it's bad. The movie creates a tone of almost surrealness that's hard to galvanize. Like, it's like I said, like Christmas can feel weird sometimes. And this movie just feels so strange. It's like if you got invited to a Christmas party, we don't know anybody. And they start like just doing, you know, uh, weird things. And there's a weird white elephant party or something. It's just like that, like that weird uncomfortable feeling that was in the other movie is magnified here to be like why do we celebrate christmas at all and then look at look at what it did to poor ricky yeah man eric freeman man he he goes for it right he you can't <laughs> listen i'm i am not i'm gonna you know i was on a land of the creeps episode about bad movies i am not a so bad it's good fan and i can't say that i was enjoying myself during this movie sitting here you know alone watching it but i gotta tell you <laughs> when he's given it his all it's i don't i don't have any ill will for this movie whatsoever like this guy is giving it his all and his facial expressions and the way he delivers his lines it's so surreal and it, it's a tour de force of some kind of force I don't yeah know. <laughs> well, it harkens it back kind of to the delivery of tommy wiseau in the room right it's it's well, just hard hands forward, I guess, would be the case. Yes, 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 because it was before. But but it just I don't know how to describe this movie, but 
it's just so weird. It's not really enthralling because you're just sitting there looking at clips from the old scenes and just having him like narrate new stuff that doesn't fit the continuity whatsoever. But then once it kind of turns itself loose a little bit at the end, I mean, we don't get a whole lot at the end, but uh, this is just such a weird movie and I'm almost at a loss for words to describe it. That's good. I mean, that's what it is. You're right. So you and I have talked a bit uh, and I've, I've mentioned this multiple times on Phantom Galaxy and you probably go to any episodes out now and hear me say the same thing. I, I sometimes, and I've, I've over the years and practically the past couple of years, I have, gained a greater appreciation i always had one for enjoying sort of schlock and bad movies to a degree but to me the distinction is uh, your bad movie has to be bad in in earnest not an imitation if right. that makes sense so right. that's the first point it can't just be trying to be a bad movie because it's ironic and cool to be a bad movie but the other thing is the thing that all movies need is passion now passion won't get you to a good movie but passion can get you to an entertaining or an engaging movie. And that's the difference to me between watching a movie like this and say Santa Jaws on sci-fi where I'm like, okay, there's no, there's no heart. There's, there's no energy there. there. Yeah. There's a lot of energy in Satellite and Lake part two, I think. And then like, but so much of it is just, it's so inexplicable because it's the sequel that wants to cash in, but at the same time is doing things completely di- like it isn't even like trying to hit all the basic beats. Yeah, it recycles that first part, but to what end? It's not like it's, it's like you said, it's almost like you're trying to like, okay, well, you know what? We had half a movie. Uh, we'll just play that again. Yeah. It's not like it's trying to slavishly like copy the first movie saying, now Santa's going to kill people. And we're going to have even more gore than last time. Look at that poster. So the poster, like the first movie is Santa with an ax. And now you're like, this, you know, this movie's in 1987 and it's like the slasher thing. And I was like, oh, now Santa's got a gun. It's a picture of a handgun. And I mean, it could be the cover of a of a James Bond Christmas set movie. I mean, it doesn't remotely look like you're dealing with a slasher film anymore because he's, he's got a gun. No, I. But, oh, go ahead, Nathan. No, that, that, that's basically it. I think this movie is a can be a lot of fun to watch in a lot of ways. I prefer watching it to the first movie because the energy of it. And if again, with the group setting, you can kind of get into it. It's a, it's a much, much, much worse movie, objectively speaking. Yeah. I mean, my rating on this to reflect, cause, cause you know, someone's going to glance at the rating. I think they need to say, this is a bad movie, but then you have to figure out is it a bad stay away or is it a bad watch it movie. For me, it's bad watch it. it it's that classic thing that, that you would get on some of the other podcasts. It's like, Oh, I give this movie a three and it's a must see. It must own. <laughs> that's how I, that's how I fall on this because I do like this movie, but it's awful. Yeah. Well, it's almost like it's to their credit though, that they were, tasked with creating just a rehash of the original and not really given any money for this. And they're like, no, we would actually do something new. And I think the argument could be made. I mean, you've got most of the first movie here. If you want to save time and be economical, you could just watch this instead of the first one, right? You get more bang for your buck. That's really kind of, I mean, in some ways I'd almost recommend that. I do think there's things to, you know, to enjoy with the first movie. Something else. I just want to mention this because we talked about a little bit about the scripts, the scripts to these movies, I don't think that they entirely work, but I think we have to acknowledge that they aren't just this sort of like violent trash that the critics at the time, what was on screen, 
you know, it was violent trash. Mm-hmm. But they, they feel like they were trying to write something a little more like engaging. Look at some of the conversations <laughs> that he has, that Ricky has. Like they try to be philosophical, right? Yeah. And they try to have this greater point. Now, the because they fall flat on their face, it makes them sort of even more epic. But it's like the movie is trying to say something, but it's not entirely certain what it's trying to say. And the fact that the movie thinks it needs to say something, it's just fascinating. It's a it's it's a fascinating movie to watch. And I and 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 I did enjoy though the kills and stuff. I enjoyed them at a level that I would enjoy normally with a slasher. I just think that part of that is because they felt so different than a movie made by human beings should feel. <laughs> yeah, it's just weird. I think you only get once in a generation one of those movies like this, right? I mean, you can say there's so many so bad they're good movies, but this feels like it was made on a different planet and was just sent down here to Earth. Like, he feels like if he was in, you know, you were talking about earlier, if he was in a Godzilla movie, he would be one of the weird aliens you know he'd be a mysterian that had came down and was impersonating a human right. zillions or whatever. Yeah. yeah exactly right <laughs> well and it was in and, and to i think sometimes bad movies are just that bad and they're hard to watch like a movie like um like even troll 2 you know people like love it because it's staggeringly bad but to me that's a hard movie to get through honestly speaking like to sit and watch i don't i don't feel that way watching this it's just there's some kind of weird lightning in a bottle that happens that but at no point do you mistake that for being good you don't sit there and think yeah that this was you know they really executed this well yeah again i've got i've got probably nothing else to say on this one nathan do you have anything no, you else just you gotta to watch it you need to yeah. watch it uh, or not watch it whatever you choose yeah whatever to you do. choose to do it's you it's up to you but as far as are you ready to wrap this one up then and just give oh absolutely ratings? yeah so uh, this one it's such like i said i don't dislike this movie i i think at the end of the day just for the absurdity of it and just how you know i expect when i watch a bad movie a lot of times I'm just kind of bored and I'm just kind of sitting there. I'm like, why am I still watching this? A lot of times I'll turn it off. I didn't really feel that in this one. I was along for whatever kind of ride I was on. But like you said, for me, this is probably like. I'll give it a three out of ten. And I, I don't know. I'll say it's probably worth now. Will I ever buy it? I don't know. But it, if you do want to buy it, it's probably worth it for those Justin Beam special features from Scream Factory, right? Oh, for sure. This one definitely is because the story of Eric Freeman and what happens after the film and how and, and, and how he's sort of brought back and how the even the even the creation of the of the the, the Blu-ray of 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 the revival of Silent Night Deadly Night Part Two, sort of the impact it does in his life, that it, it, it's like a whole nother story that you get to experience through the special features and everything. So right. with this one, yeah, like this, I think is one of the must own and because you get the movie and then you get everything else. And part of the mystery and the fascinating fact is, well, what was this guy thinking when he did this? And you get that on these special features. So yeah, if you yeah. got to own any of them, I think the silent night, deadly night part two is the one. to own. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. And I know I don't have that one yet, but maybe, you know, next Scream Factory sale, maybe I'm going to look for that. So so let's let's go ahead and segue into Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out. So the only kind of note I have on this one, this was directed by uh, Monty Hellman. And Nathan, you might be surprised. You might have already heard this, but he said this was his best work. 
Now he didn't say it was huh. he didn't say it was his best film. Um, but he <laughs> said he said they had to basically rewrite the script for a week in March. Uh, filming was done in April. Editing was done in May. The movie was ready in July. So he was just saying, you know, from start to finish, they got it done so quickly um, that he was proud of the work that they put in to get it done in that time period. Now, should he be? I don't know, because I'm going to. So looking at Letterboxd and I looked at Letterboxd for the last one, a lot of times with those so bad, they're good. You're not going to see the bottom of the barrel. You're going to see, I think, um, part two was at like a 2.4 out of five. So that's not too bad, actually, in the grand scheme of things. This one sits at a 1.9 and is the lowest mark in the series. So this released in 1989, so two years later. And the synopsis reads, Ricky Caldwell, the notorious killer Santa Claus, awakens from a six-year coma after being kept alive on life support by a slightly crazed doctor experimenting with ESP and other special abilities. What a mouthful. Ricky targets a young, clairvoyant, blind woman named Laura, whom is traveling with her brother Chris and his girlfriend Jerry to their grandmother's house for Christmas Eve, and Ricky decides to go after her, leaving a trail of dead bodies in the wake. Now, with this one, you would be forgiven if you thought that was the synopsis of, you know, a late 80s Italian film, because it sounds like it. You've got a blind, clairvoyant girl. You've got, you know, a serial killer kept alive on ESP. It sounds like it's got all the makings of that. But... Nathan, I think we're in this together when we think this had promise, I think, from the premise and from the opening scene. And then after that, it might have just uh, deflated a little. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think you're right, because when I started this, there's a point near the beginning where we get a dream sequence and uh, so Monty Helmet's name and then factor of a lot of the cast members here and even the plot there's a there there are moments in this where you feel like you're getting david lynch's silent night deadly night which i absolutely been all in for but the movie doesn't really (laughs) ever stay in that vein but you got first five minutes of this is this bizarre sort of dream sequence in a sort of like uh almost like a cabinet of dr caligari-esque mall and santa doing a provocative suggestive dance (laughs) i mean there's you it feels you mentioned the Italian film it feels very much like an Italian film and for the first five or ten minutes of this because you get the, the dream sequence then you get the basic setup and I thought to myself wow I think this will be the best one yet like I thought I, I sat and watching you it were thinking, messaging me saying like you were all in for this one at one point yeah yeah well right so it sets up this idea it's got Ricky but but now he's played by Bill Mosley and he's played by Bill Mosley with basically like a colander on his head like his brain is in this sort of dome or something and it's it looks ridiculous but you start to get this vibe of a movie that would be uh I think the same year as this you got what Wes Craven shocker and the kind of movie this is starts to feel a lot more like that kind of a movie right there are Christmas accoutrements, but it's not, it doesn't feel very Christmassy. And the whole Santa killer, even though that's who Ricky Caldwell is, I don't think the Santa killer thing really like even enters into the movie as much in this one. No, no, it doesn't. And this is where we start to get diminishing returns on what it actually has to, you know, how it relates to the original, because in the second one, you know, you can kind of see how that's directly tied to the original this one you've just kind of got it's on it's on the outside it's right there you've got ricky's character but that's about it and then after this all bets are off when connecting anything back to the original 
But you mentioned David Lynch, and of course, it wouldn't be one of these episodes that we do without mentioning, you know, Eric DeRay again is in this movie. <laughs> and he's got a lot of hair. You know, this might be the nicest looking, most friendly looking I've seen him in a movie. That's true. And it's right. I think it's right before he's playing Leo, right? Like, yeah, so, yeah it's a year before. And it's a year before that. You've got him. You've got Richard Beamer. Yep. who uh is you know is also in the film in uh, Twin Peaks and plays a pretty prominent role there and a prominent role here because he's the doctor sort of the quote unquote mad scientist character and Laura Herring who wouldn't be in Twin Peaks but would go on to be in Mulholland Drive with David Lynch and the movie has a very lynchy sort of feel to it not just I think in the dream sequences but also in the kind of plots where they're playing with a lot of like 50s like archetypes you know like you said you've got like the clairvoyant you've got the mad science doctor robert culp shows up as the uh, late in the game i was like when is robert culp gonna show up and he finally shows up as a detective and there's long sequences in this movie where we just follow richard bamer and robert culp are having discussions about about science and and the what are the moral arenas that science belongs in? And those are the kind of scenes you see in a 1950s monster movie, right? Like these discussions are written at about the same level as the discussions in a movie like the, uh, the creature walks among us. The last creature from the black lagoon movie has those sorts of, of high minded, but ultra campy hokey uh, dialogue. And it's in this movie and we keep seeing lots of it. Like, well, well, uh, Ricky's trying to get back and continue his murder spree. We have long conversations in a car in the middle of a Silent Night, Deadly Night movie. We have long sequences where characters seemingly are just waiting around to be murdered. And, you know, speaking of, what about that grandma that has ESP too, or seemingly? Yeah. <laughs> they didn't go anywhere with that, did they? <laughs> no, I think that's the thing. There are so many potentially interesting things about to happen in this movie. This movie is constantly on the cusp or on the culp of, of becoming <laughs> interesting. It's right there. You keep waiting for the movie to get started with what it's talking about, but it just talks. It just keeps talking and, and talking and talking. And eventually the movie ended and I was still the whole time I was poised and ready for it to become the best Silent Night, Deadly Night movie, and then the movie ended, and I thought, well, that's the worst Silent Night, Deadly Night movie. Yeah, this thing is a slog to get through in the middle sections, and it's nothing like, there's nothing offensive about this film. It's not like it's, I guess there kind of is, it's kind of boring, really, is I think is our... You know, I remember when we were reviewing the Critters films, and I said this, and, and it's become a common complaint of mine with this sort of movie is it sometimes they try to hedge their bets. And I think trying to get it done so quickly and you get someone like Monty Hellman who has a certain level of proficiency, right. And able to get the movie shot and done. And he's, he, he doesn't, I, I do think that the, the main actress here that Samantha Scully is Laura, like she's not good. And I think her no. line delivery and, but she's, it's not like she's, she's not like Eric Freeman level. Where it just, you know, it's mind-boggling to watch. She's just sort of like soap opera bad. Yeah, she and, doesn't really have a lot of experience either, I think. I, I don't yeah, think yeah. she really did a lot else. So, so she's not great. But everyone else is like legitimately showing up to work. You know, all these other people are good. And the movie does have a... And because 
you've got someone who who knows what they're doing with the camera it looks good it the the sequences are set out the dream sequences are effective and so in any given moment the movie's relatively this is what i said i think of the critters episode sometimes the movie feels too sensible it's like it's it's got its ambition set pretty low it's uh it meets everything it sets out to do but in doing so it loses the like the advantage that schlock has right that schlock can kind of swing for the fences and because the stakes are low you can do something crazy and maybe get away with it and you'd think when you give bill mosley that get up on his head and the idea that he's got like these psychic powers and he's connected to this girl you think you're gonna go like really the movie's really gonna go for it and it it doesn't no and he's kind of unrecognizable because he's so comatose in oh, this he has, movie yeah. this is not a movie you watch because like oh bill mosley i mean he's not even like he might look like Chop Top at a couple scenes, but he's not. This is a hundred. This is literally the opposite side of that coin. Yeah. And it's it's like you're saying, like, you can criticize all those bad Italian 80s, 70s movies all you want, but at least they were interesting and they went for something. Like if this film was made by an Italian filmmaker, I think it would have a very different feel with the same premise, same script and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think sure. it could have a different feel like, yeah, no, you wouldn't know what was going on, but it might be you a lot know more what fun. That feel was. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> but I, yeah, I just think of something like ghost house, like ghost house is not a good movie, but it's fun to an extent. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. So I I think what sums this up is it's boring and there's just a lot of wasted potential that could have been on this movie. No, I'll agree with that. And honestly, it's it's funny because up to this point, this is the one that I would actually say you don't need to watch, even though at certain moments it was the one I think that had the potential to gather everything up and actually cross the finish line. Uh, In some ways, at certain points, it felt like the best made one and things like that. And yet it just keeps circling the wagons, <laughs> circling happens. the drain, really circling um, the drain is probably a better way to put it. Yeah. But I, I don't know. It's it's disappointing. And for, you know, for Leo Johnson to lose the, you know, the neo-Nazi haircut and don that those luscious locks in this movie, it's just a shame. <laughs> well, I guess this was been before he had chopped yeah. it off. Right. But uh, he I don't know. Uh, this movie is it's just frustrating because it could have had and just listening to the premise there could have been so much more so is there anything else you want to say on this one or do you just want to wrap this one up because i feel like this is the one i have the least to say about no i agree although we've been mentioning all the posters so i might as well mention this poster too and the poster totally looks like an italian horror film that's all it I'm does say. it feels so much like i i was confused when i watched it i was like this is an italian horror movie and it's not but I really wish they had ported it over to Italy because we, <laughs> if they had, we might have legitimately gotten the best movie in the series. Yes. Yeah. Could have been. Yep. Yeah, but all right, Nathan, what do you come in on a rating on this one? That's like a four. I mean, again, it's hard because legitimately speaking, the it, it, it's filmmaking's fine. Everything's fine. It's just not very interesting. It's the, it's the definition of a middle of the road horror movie. Uh, in terms of it doesn't doesn't it just kind of lays there <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and i'm i'm right there with you i'm at a four it's not it's just kind of boring you know it's decently well made like you said the cast around it's pretty good but 
it's just nothing for me. I feel nothing for this movie <laughs> except disappointment, unfortunately. Yeah, that's me too. Yeah, but... All right, well, let's go to something a little more interesting and talk about Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Initiation. These subtitles, it's not even... <laughs> At this point, let's just recognize that we are completely away almost from the Christmas theme with this one and away from any semblance of trying back the original. Now, this one I was surprised to find was directed by Brian Yuzna, and it dropped in 1990. So now we're at yearly direct-to-video installments for this series. The tagline is, if I die before I wake, thank you. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, Synopsis reads, a reporter investigating the bizarre death of a woman who leaped from a building in flames finds herself mixed up in a cult of witches who are making her part of their sacrificial ceremony during the Christmas season. Now, I think we both agree, Nathan, that this is a step up and is definitely more interesting. And even though this came out a year before, this feels a lot like 1991's The Sect, directed by Michele Suave. A legitimate Italian horror film. (laughs) Yes, yeah, it feels very much like that. And, um... I wasn't expecting this at all, Nathan. Did you know anything about this one going in, or did you just kind of... I knew that Yuzna had directed it, and I knew that there... I'd heard that there were some weird elements to it, that it kind of abandoned Killer Santa and went in a different direction. And full, uh, you know, I guess, disclosure, the one Silent Night, Deadly Night movie I did see pretty close within a year of when it was actually released was Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, the uh, the toy maker. I remember seeing that one around the time that it was released and we rented it and watched it. And so that, I, that movie, you know, it, it actually has some weird connections to this one. But that one I had recognized, oh, well, this isn't Killer Santas at all. So I knew that this, the series had jumped the rails there. Mm-hmm. But no, I don't think I had any expectation, nor really would you, for what kind of movie this is. And in fact, uh, they have all three of these movies. Vestron is releasing. I think it's Vestron, is it? Or no, it's, is it? I guess um, it's Scream Factory, isn't it? It might be Scream yeah, Factory. I think, I think it may, it, it probably is Scream Factory now that I'm saying it. But um, the thing is, the art that they do is great. But it kind of spoils these movies, these, these, yeah. these three, because it tells you a lot about them. No, it's much Vestron. Better. Okay, it is Vestron. Okay. So it tells you, in my opinion, too much about the movies, uh, particularly the fourth film. Because I think walking into the fourth movie with no feeling for what it is, is the best way to go. Yes, I agree. I agree. And, oh, man, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just now remembering Clint Howard later in this movie in a scene that's very Brian Yuzna. And (laughs) (laughs) this movie goes places and I don't, I wasn't by no means ready for where it went. And uh, it's, it's such an interesting movie because I don't think it gets there all the way. I personally like something like the sect better than this but I think it just goes in such an interesting direction. And it takes so many chances and it goes full on. I mean, I guess we can say this. It kind of goes in like a folk horror almost direction. Oh, a hundred percent. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I, 
I can tell you I was much more entertained by this one. Um, the Clint Howard character is a little weird. And, you know, we've got also named Ricky, also named Ricky. Yeah. And this wouldn't be the weirdest of the Clint Howard stuff either. But you've got I mean, you've got um, oh, I'm blanking right now. Reggie Bannister in this movie, too, <laughs> right, is like a that's the thing from the opening of this one. The the fire scene at the beginning with that woman jumping from the building on fire. That's pretty cool. I, it had my attention immediately of that. I don't know how you felt about that, Nathan. No, absolutely. And actually, before you see Clint Howard, who's like looking, he's so excited because he finds like a half eaten cheeseburger. He's seeming like, <laughs> like a homeless man wandering around, which is about what you kind of expect from a Clint Howard performance. Um, and this is, of course, before Ice Cream Man, a lot of the like stuff he did. But he's definitely dialed into it. And, you know, this is before I'm screaming, I'm infested in ticks and all that good stuff. And he's uh, he looks up and here's this woman. You're right. It kind of is an instant grabber. And of course, if you know Usna and you've seen movies like Society and stuff like that, then you can kind of like get the vibe. And this is only a couple years after Society. And so he likes to kind of jump right in uh, and get you involved in the story. But, I, you know, to your point, you're right. I wasn't really expecting this movie either and in my opinion it's the best of the bunch so far for one thing it actually feels like a horror movie like you get invested in that story to a degree and you get invested in the mystery and you're getting invested too i mean this movie has moments that i would actually say are legitimately horrific and i know that the other movies intended to have those moments but a lot of times they were hampered where we either kind of found them ironically funny or something like that but this movie's creepy and unsettling and hit some actual legitimate horror notes that I think are done on purpose and they work. Yeah. And it has that early nineties weirdness vibe to it because once you get to the, I mean, you've still got some weird stuff later in the nineties, but that like, you know, sweet spot of like 90 to 94, there was some weird stuff coming out. I mean, we did that 92 episode with stuff like the vagrant. This, yeah, this fits into that sort of that vein pretty well. And if you know Yuza, he is big on body horror. He's big on like really out there weird ideas and uh, gloopiness and creatures. And he works a lot with the makeup artist um, Screaming Mad George, which is probably the best, you know, if that's the name his parents gave him. Well, you know, they were right on. (laughs) But the Screaming Mad George visual effects are very strong in this movie. And they're strong to stomach, actually, too. I would say that. I don't get a lot of spoilers, but if you do not like insects, you should not watch this movie. Yeah, I would say not because there's some particularly cockroaches. Yeah, there's some stuff at cockroaches. You thought the end of, of Creep Show was a hot mess of running cockroaches. I mean, this movie has some very gloopy, strange imagery moments that are nightmarish. You talked about like we tried to have the the nightmare sequences that happened in the other movie. There's some here that is legitimately like a David Lynch or a David Cronenberg, and there's almost no explanation. For it now, I think structurally the movie's not as good as all that. It is right. hard to sort of like really connect with these characters. Neath Hunter is giving a very weird sort of performance. When she's she's a like right on tap in the beginning, and you're right, Reggie Bannister shows up. It's bizarre because, 
And I don't know. I, I, th- I think we've talked, and I know that you don't always keep up with. I don't think you've kept up with Stranger Things, but there's in Stranger Things season three, there's a whole storyline with some of the characters where they're working for a newspaper in the '80s, and they can't catch a break because <laughs> you've got the the head of the 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 newspaper is he's got a good old boys club where they all go in and sit with them, and they get all the assignments, and the and the lone female has to sit there and just grit her teeth and you know write the. Uh, the classifieds or, or the dear Abby, you know, stuff. And that plot line is almost identically ported over from this movie. Like that's a significant part of the early going of this film. And Reggie Bannister is the editor. That's not going to give her the break. Yeah. And the, the guy she's with is just like, like you say, just kind of goes along with all of it. Right. And just says, well, that's just the way things are. And all, I mean, and she kind of turns that around. I mean, he got it turned around on him later on, I would say, but yeah. And you mentioned that this movie doesn't have a lot of Christmas. And I would say, I'd say it doesn't, it doesn't. You're right. That like the tone, there isn't this pervasive like tone of, of the Christmas season blanketing the film, the way, not unlike a, a batch of new fallen snow, but uh, <laughs> there's nothing blanketing the film in such a way that the first movie had, but they do have this one scene that I think kind of, ca- it kind of perfectly captures the awkwardness of like bad Christmas get togethers, you know? Oh yeah. I forgot and about that scene. Th- like that's a pretty significant Christmas scene because in addition to the fact that it, this is a guy she's dating at work who has no spine and won't stand up for, it. and then he, he has the like presumptuous to invite her over to have dinner with his family, and 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 her fa- and his father can't get over the fact that she's Jewish, yeah, and begins to go on a diatribe, and they have a conversation about religion, and it's it it, it sort of begins to mirror what's going on in this movie because in a sense. I don't want to give too much away, but basically Brian Usna is telling his, you know, forget Santa and all that. He's going to go back and he's going to tell you his own version of uh, the Virgin Mary and the, and the, and the prophesied birth of the savior, uh, except he's going to do it with bugs and Clint Howard. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And for all the moments that you had mentioned, that are kind of gross and, all that there's a lot of good subtle moments of horror. I think in this too, there's one in a park where I think you first realize like what this movie really is. And uh, there's one later on with, um, you know, near the very end of the movie that has to do with kind of a group of people. But I, I just think, is it a complete movie? No, but I think there's really interesting bits and pieces here and there that make this a fun watch. And I think that it makes it, like you said, probably one of the better horror movies in this franchise as just a horror movie alone. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think that what happens eventually, the story is weird. And and, and there are so many strange scenes. I, I want to touch, it just popped into my head. I want to touch on it. There is a link that this movie has to the last film, but it's this is this is where things get strange is that and not so much this one, but it's really when you get to the next movie where things get really weird in the way they try to tie these things together. Is that there after the the Neith Hunter, who's been sort of like very cool on romance for most of the movie, that she doesn't she keeps dodging this guy's advances. Once uh, some of these strange cult things start to happen to her, there's a moment when she's come back to her apartment, very much changed in a sense, and she is 
she's kind of like getting aggressive and coming on to this guy while he's like half asleep and she's not taking no for an answer. And you're thinking this scene is developing very weirdly and sudden. And, and if, but then while you're thinking that's developing weirdly, it gets even weirder because Clint Howard just comes in, wanders into their apartment and sits on the edge of the bed while she is aggressively mauling him. And he just starts turning TV on and watching and eating popcorn. And then he's watching the dream sequence from, it's on like deadly night three and when they pop up she screams ricky but she's not even she seems like she's kind of into it she's fine he's hanging there and then the guy's like who are you and he says santa killer and she's <laughs> like what what is happening that entire scene and that scene continues to get weirder and weirder and and, and clint howard later there's eventually clint howard's wearing this weird phallically suggestive Pinocchio mask. I mean, Oh, there's nothing just... suggestive about that. That's just straight up. But that, that scene is so weird. And that's kind of what I was talking about of him getting a little bit of his later on. It's like, he's already weirded out by the way she's acting. And then Clint Howard's just sitting there. Like you said, just enjoying himself. It's so, but he's weird. not even watching them. He's watching, no, he's them, watching the movie. Just, yeah. Yeah. He's it's hanging such... out to see how things develop. Yes. It's, it's... It's so bizarre. And in that sense, no. As a story, it doesn't all come together. But as a sort of weird, surreal horror film, I like it. I like it. I like it better than the other movies. And there's this scene, I don't know if that's the scene you're talking about, there is this weird scene where she is sort of like, there are many scenes where she starts to sort of trip out a little Mm -hmm. bit. And there is one where I think she's in the park and she's laying on her back on the field and she's looking up and and, and there's a subtle kind of creepiness in what she sees in the trees. And I like that a lot. So I think Yuzna does a pretty good job here. I, it, it's not a movie that is, uh, I, I think, going to necessarily be at the top of his resume. But I liked it for what it was. Yeah, and I do too. There's something about it. I don't know how to describe what I like about this film, but I think it's like what you said. It's just the weirdness and the uniqueness of the scenes and what happens with this movie. And I, I think it's just a cool movie to watch. But... You had you've so you've seen the story before, mm-hmm. but you haven't seen the story done quite this way, which I think is what what sets it apart a little bit. And I think for purposes of this movie, really, you're better if you just drop that Silent Night, Dead Night Four, and consider this movie as the initiation. Yeah, no, I agree, and uh, I think that's the best way to go into this one. And I mean, I guess that's probably the best way to go into five too. You just look at it as the toy maker. But um, I don't know anything else you want to kind of touch on on this one before we go into ratings, Nathan. No, I, I think that we've given the basic shape of the movie pretty well. I, I, I do think that towards the end, it starts to get really jumbled with a lot of things going on. But yeah, this is if you like body horror and cults and like you said, full core, this would be the. uh this will be the movie. And you can actually, you know, I see you call it the initiation. Probably you just call it the nativity and that would work too. <laughs> that would work. That would work tied in as like a Christmas type movie. Yeah. No, I'm all for that. Yeah. I would, I'd probably come in on this one as far as ratings go, probably around like a, I don't know. I want to call it a six because I think there's still stuff, especially as we get towards the ending that doesn't work for me. Um, This is one that I think's a couple steps away from being that next tier of movie, Nathan. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's that's my personal thoughts. I think there's a lot of cool folk horror stuff. I think there's a lot of cool, weird nightmare dream stuff. And it just needed a little bit more to kind of tie it all together for me. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I do like this one better than the other movies. But how much more? <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> I don't really know. It's a, it's, yeah, it's a 6.5 for me. It's right there at the cusp. It's about to bring it all over. I don't know that it really gets completely over. But it is a lot of fun to watch. And it's one of the few that I would, uh, I think I'd find myself revisiting more often than the other movies. Yeah, I think honestly, um, four and five are going to fit that bill for me because I do want to watch this one again, knowing like what's going on and knowing everything and see how I feel about it then. But speaking of five, let's go ahead and move into that one, because I think that's a fun one to talk about as well. And that is uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night five, the toy maker. This was directed by Martin Katrosser and was released in 1991. So again, one year later. And you see what they're obviously going for with the tagline here. He's home, but he's not alone. (laughs) And this movie has nothing to do with home alone. So I I think everything was trying to ape that at the time. But the synopsis for this reads, a young boy sees his father killed by a toy that was anonymously delivered to his house. After that, he is too traumatized to speak. And his mother must deal with both him and the loss of her husband. Meanwhile, a toy maker named Joe Petto, P-E-T-O, by the way, builds some suspicious looking toys and a mysterious man creeps around both the toy store and the boy's house. But who is responsible for the killer toys? But right off the bat, this movie throws like a ton of red herrings at you, right? This is like that, like poorly conceived murder mystery from the start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just thought about I laughed a little bit when I thought about that guy because you're watching this movie unfold. And first of all, that the scene where the kid's father gets murdered is pretty cool. Uh, I think it's a good way to set the tone for the movie, although I'm not sure it prepares you for where it's going to go. But that guy just wandering around. And then when you figure out why he's there, it's like, yeah, that's not that big of a mystery. I mean, I could have figured that out. And <laughs> it's just really weird. This whole movie is really weird. I know we called the last one weird. This one isn't quite as weird. I don't know, Nathan. What do you want to say as far as your opening thoughts on the toy maker? (laughs) This is this is the one I like the best. Hands down. This is the one that I think, uh, again, we're not talking necessarily a great classic, but for me, it gets over the line and makes a movie that is a good Christmas horror movie, a fun Christmas horror movie, I should say. And it does bring back, uh, Yuzna, I think wrote the script for this and he and uh, screaming Matt George comes back and does the special effects for it. And the movie's still very, very rough around the edges. It, it, one of the things that the silent night, deadly night series never fully moves away from, even in the last installment is the sensibility of like a TV movie with a lot of gore. You will notice that in the last movie did this too, that they, they, they do up the quotient of the uh, nudity in this movie. So now, you know, I think that the the Silent Night, Deadly Night series has this sort of reputation, but I don't think that, you know, didn't none of them really had a whole ton of nudity. Again, there was a, a decent bit of four, but it was all gross. Like, oh, I don't want to see that kind yeah, of exactly. nudity for the most part. This one right off the bat throw some in uh you know when the kid is walking through his house and then comes down and this toy comes out i like this movie because structurally speaking it's uh, again we talked about it being sensible that there's a pretty sensible through line it does develop as a mystery 
I think that some of the mystery elements, like you said, they're easy to figure out. They're not that much of a mystery. You could have cut them completely. I've never seen dueling sex scenes in a movie before. <laughs> uh, this looks like it could be like, uh, you know, it's weird because it's like a young couple and the guy can't even get the bra off. And then it's like this more like seasoned couple that are like tearing each other's clothes off. And I'm not even sure what they're trying to say that. It's just that in addition to building the tension where you have this imminent attack by these killer toys, and then you still got all the time to follow this two sex scenes that they just cut back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, it, that's a that's a weird moment. But I think the payoff is good in that one. As far as when the toys come to attack, I think that's I, I think that's a really strong point of this movie are these little toys. It's almost like um, a much more brutal, like small soldiers or something. You've yeah, got, that's a good point. That's actually yeah, that's a good comparison point. Yeah, you've got these toys just kind of wreaking havoc and destroying these people. You don't get like a, we're long past the days of a Santa Claus killer and much more interesting, you know, who's making these toys and why are they viciously and brutally murdering these people? And why is he targeting this family specifically? The weird thing, and we kind of, you alluded to this last time. I can't get over the whole Clint Howard cameo in this movie. (laughs) <laughs> it's just That's so true. weird. Well, it's not even just the Clint Howard cameo. And I'm going to try to say everything I say here without any spoilers is even before we see Clint Howard in this film, we see the protagonist of the last movie mm-hmm. and, and the, the, the guy she was dating his, uh, I guess his nephew They're in this movie. They were the central characters that played pretty significantly into i mean who those characters are and who they were to the cult play are pretty significant you know what i mean yes like to the conclusion of that movie and then here they are as side characters in this movie and it's just like you guys have really crappy luck right but the kid is sort of like a jerk kid you know what i mean like it's yes it's they're incidental that they happen to be the same characters i when i first saw this movie i didn't know that they were in the fourth movie And the fact that they're in the fourth movie is only paid off briefly with a lie where she says, I've seen a lot of strange things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you did. Well, when the kid seems like a different character from almost what he was in four too, like you were saying, he was a jerky, much more of a jerk. To be fair, a lot of things have happened. Uh, That's true. That's true. I I don't want to go into what, but (laughs) there's a lot of significant things that have happened to him, but they, they, they never really pay that off. And then, like you say, Clint Howard's a different character here. And at one point they are watching somebody watches on television, the scene from part four where Clint Howard is sitting on the bed, watching the scene from part three, this Russian nesting doll of flashbacks incidentally, but it makes no sense how and Clint Howard's another character named Ricky. So and now he's in the Santa costume in a convoluted sort of way, but he put that stuff aside. Like the one element we saw and talked about is this Joe, Joe Petto. And we learned that he has a son named Pino, <laughs> which is, but then but you take that part aside and rem- forget the fact that, so this kid is traumatized because they, he basically watches dad be killed by a toy. And I think there's enough going on at the crime scene to suggest that, yeah, at the very least, this toy showed up and this guy's dead and the kid isn't talking anymore. He's gone mute. And the mother is trying to think, racking her brain for what can I do to make this kid feel better and you know what? I know what we'll do. We saw his dad get killed. 
uh, in relation to a toy. So let's take them to a toy store called Petos Toys. <laughs> well, Petos Toys. And forget the fact that, like, if she knew, and I don't know, did she know that he was murdered by a toy? I mean, I don't think that they knew, but the, but the, you know, there's this idea that, like, okay, this is unwrapped box. Like, where did this come from? The toy is literally still sitting there because it's picked up and put back on the shelf. And it is a pretty neat, like, the, the scene where the toy, quote unquote, kills him. Now, there are extenuating circumstances that make it look like it was an accident or something. Mm-hmm unrelated to killer toy but you know there's no questioning of where did this come from this is what he was doing right before he died you know he's you know it's laying there on the ground it's unwrapped like none of that seems to factor in yeah ask some questions and maybe don't take him to the toy store which i mean this doesn't seem like a big town i mean maybe there's two toy stores in town but and that's the weird thing is that his dad was kind of being a jerk to him in the situation but almost uh, unintentionally saved his life too right with that toy scene because he's kind of yeah, yelling at him like why are you yeah. taking this off the port why are you grabbing this where'd you get this from go up to bed it's hard when you're a parent and your kids are cock blocking you it's easy to get mad yeah it does happen yeah yeah and then you used to get a pull together but like he stays downstairs and plays with the toy i'm like okay but the What's going on in this film is when you get to the toy store, you have Mickey Rooney, <laughs> who, who previously had said he's able to be run on town on the round. Now, to be fair, I'm pretty certain that Mickey Rooney thought he was in a movie called The Toy Maker. Yeah. And, uh, and this isn't, although one point, Mickey Rooney is in the Santa Claus costume, you know, throwing kids in sacks. So... <laughs> But he is, he's Joe Petto, he's the owner of the store. And Mickey Rooney is, I mean, all things considered, he's hes pretty good in the movie. He shows up, I mean, he's just doing his Mickey Rooney thing, he's the old crusty toy maker. But they, but they get these scenes between he and his son, who seems like a bit of a creep. And yes. he, he goes into these drunken rages and start. we're watching Mickey Rooney, who, who's reasonably old by this point in time this movie comes out like throwing this young guy around and beating the crap out of him in this very like (laughs) abusive like rabid way and you're just sort of like wow what is happening this movie is so weird in that regard and again i don't think that this movie is necessarily 100 good but it hits all the schlock beats pretty well and even though it's not directed by you there's enough of that sensibility but i think one of the benefits of it not being directed by Yuzna is it doesn't, instead of honing in and, and getting obsessive about some of these weirder things, it's much more mainstream and streamlined mm-hmm. in, in that way. And so you get this kind of goofy Scooby-Doo level mystery that isn't much of a mystery because of all the stuff they trot out right in front of your face. Right. And then you get these cool killer toy scenes. And I, and, and there's a scene, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the, the, the policemen who, picks up or not policeman one of the guys that gets one of the toys he's taking it with him home and it's in his car and i swear that that toy which is sort of like a weird little inchworm thing is a replica or a toy version of the bugs (laughs) from the previous film the larval thing seems like it from the movie the previous movie but the way that thing attacks you and kills you is interesting and again this would have been around the time frame that the 
Puppet Master movies are in full swing. And I think this movie kind of gives the Puppet Masters a run for the money a little bit in terms of the killer toy stuff. Or Demonic Toys was probably the next this year or the next year. So yeah. uh, it, it fits into that sort of vein. It feels kind of like those movies. But the stuff with uh, Joe Petto and the Tipino and all of that stuff, and then what happens regarding the, 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 the shadowy figure that keeps showing up or the stranger who keeps showing up at the house... They do manage to develop a story here that keeps you relatively interested. And then it, it culminates in an ending that technically you should see coming, but it's just so off the wall that I'm not entirely sure you do. The ending to this movie is both expected and utterly crazy. Yeah, and and I want to go back, Nathan, because there's a couple things I wanted to talk about here. And first of all, who is... It's so weird that we have connections at all between these films. It's almost like they're trying to one up each other. It's like Yusnus sees the scene in three and puts that in his movie. And then someone's like, well, guess what would be funny if we put the, the scene of him watching four in five or him watching three and four, five. But um, yeah, that so what that scene with the um the toy bug that was the mysterious guy who's walking around. It was his landlord or something trying to collect rent. And he pays him in toys for his kid. But it's just so weird that they commit to that. And he's like, you know, what does he tell him? Like, hey, don't open that until Christmas and has kind of a look on his face. Like you think, you know, maybe he's the one that's involved in all this. But um, the ending, like you said, is incredibly off the wall. Um, it is something that I should have picked up on earlier. I think I don't, I did not pick up on it as early as you did, as far as like naming conventions or where it was going to go. But yes, even when it goes where you expect it to go, it's still a little crazy. I I do have one thing to ask you though, Nathan, is there any chance with the Mickey Rooney stuff that there was a, you know, disgruntled employee that worked on that first film that tricked Mr. Rooney into taking this role by pitching it to him completely differently for uh, irony's sake. I think that it's quite possible <laughs> that that's the case. But I also think it, it, it's not just that, though. It's that there's also a line that, that that Mickey Rooney says, and I can't remember it off the top of my head exactly what he says, but it's something like, you know, we never know what fate has in store for us or something yeah, like exactly. that. And it's like, yeah, you got to watch got what you got to be careful about what franchise you knock. It just I think it's just so inexplicable because of that. It's hard to believe that that happens without some intervention because of the nature of like it's so random that Mickey Rooney had anything to say about that movie to begin with. Even more random that like literally about 10 years, you know, a little bit less than 10 years later He's in this sequel with killer toys and he himself gets to be the imposing Santa figure at one point in the movie. <laughs> right. It's, it's all too surreal. I feel like and it is, but I think that adds to the charm. That's what, here's a legit B movie about Christmas, about, about consumerism. It's got a little bit of a mystery. It's got the gore. It's got the best gore. I think in the series, honestly, it's got some of the best kills. The scene with the toys sort of march up and, and have this uh, whole full-blown assault is really cool. I love that sequence. It's still 100% goofy and silly and not entirely well-conceived at any given moment. It feels very much of its piece of time at this early 90s, sort of straight to 
the video movie. But I think you'd be hard pressed. Like, what more would you really want from from a movie like this? Exactly. And you speaking of time, I mean, I think you called that this was going to have the um, Amityville 92 and the Critters 3 type of effect on me. And I think it is that type of movie, right? This is very in its schlock and campiness and over the top. It's very closely related to Amityville 92 or something like that, except I know you probably like this one a little better than Amityville 92, but it's in that same tone. Like we talked about, it's a weird early 90s movie. It's, you know, over the top. It's completely crazy. And I really like it for that. Now, I don't know where I would place it with the other movies in the series, but I liked it. And I think these past two films were just a welcome distraction from kind of that first um, initial slog of the first three movies. Yeah, for sure. You know, you know, it belongs number one. <laughs> oh, I um, give this one a seven. You'd give it a seven. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it is number one for you then, right? Or is this the one you like the most? It's the one I like the most. I think it's the one that I legitimately like. I'll pick up that Vestron set to own this one in the fourth movie. Unfortunately, the third one didn't do too much for me. But I like I think this one I can watch standalone a fun campy Christmas horror movie it's a and I enjoy it on that on that level and I think it does what it's supposed to do just about as well as you'd want it to and then there's that extra bonus of that ending because that ending is nuts I like there are things uh, except you know also not nuts in a certain sense but uh that's a that's an inside joke when you see the film. And Adam Wonder One character exclaims, "My God!" After everything else we've seen, and then something she doesn't see is what sets her off. That's that scene, and and then that there are killer roller skates in this movie. I mean, you could go on and on. There's things I'm just thinking about, and it makes me smile thinking about it. But at the same time, it's the one I think of the whole set that functions best as a a horror movie that also has the feel of a sort of goofy Christmas movie. And, you know, it is, it is true, Nathan, you know, that man has no dick, but <laughs> so weird. <laughs> the actors, every actor involved in the last five, including the kid involved in the last 10 to 15 minutes of this movie. It's just astounding that they sat down and said, this is this where is we're it. going. This is it. And this yeah. is the thing. Like, <laughs> at what point did 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 Mickey Rooney get to read the script before he agreed to it? There's no need for that. No. I you know, I think at the end of the day on my rating, I think this comes in as probably for now it's gonna sit at my second favorite. I'll put it as six point five. Uh, it's very close with that first one with my enjoyment of it. And I think I think this is conversation has almost pushed me to wanting to get that. Vestron video <laughs> set and it's only like 17 bucks on Amazon or something. Yeah, you right get now, all three. So. And you have a great the guy I said it kind of spoils the movies. This is a great cover art, but this one, yeah, this is this is the best of the bunch. And it surprised me honestly that it was. Um because usually this late in the game and with this kind of plot and this premise, I mean this movie is totally wacky and it shouldn't work, but I think it does work and it is very there there's definitely some C and D, some cinematic nostalgia disorder going on for me with this. I, I had seen it before. I didn't remember a lot about it, but I will say that it's not just 
it, the movie doesn't just make you nostalgic if you've seen this one before. It makes you nostalgic for the 90s, for that direct-to-video kind yes, of movie. Yes, which you know that I love. Yeah, yeah. And we were, you know, the, the Critters movies last time. But I think that this one's more successful than those because it has its own identity. It is weird and nutty and strange. And, and, and it had it been made in the 80s, it might have a slightly different tone, but it wouldn't probably have changed much about it, you know? No, no, absolutely. But... Yeah, so that's I just want to reiterate. I mean, if you haven't seen these movies, I think four and five are definitely worth checking out, even if you're not just looking for a killer Santa movie. All right, Nathan, are you ready to bring this one home with the uh, loose remake? Yes. Yeah, let's do it. That's how it's I keep going back to loose remake because that's how it's described everywhere when you look it up. And, you know, it's so loose that they didn't even take the title, which makes you think, you know, they did not have the rights to this thing. But what we have here is Silent Night from 2012, and it was directed by Stephen C. Miller, who sounds familiar, but it doesn't seem like I would know him from anything. The synopsis for this one reads, the police force of a remote Midwestern town search for a killer Santa Claus who is picking off citizens on Christmas Eve. So I want to get my negatives out of the way right off the bat is this thing stinks of aughts and early, you know, 2010s feel and vibe to it. There's something and this might be a me problem, Nathan. I grew up in this era and I have a real problem with this type of filmmaking in horror films, especially that was happening at the time. It's just automatically you're starting off with the wrong foot for me. Now, I'm not going to say that I dislike this film because I think, and you've said this, and I'll let you expand on this, but this is the most slasher-esque of any films, I think, in the franchise. Yes, I I think that that's true. I agree with that. And I think that, uh, yeah, Silent Night, I remember when this came out, and actually I was, I was a critic at the time, and I remember uh, them sending me a screener for this, but I don't think I, I don't believe I ever watched it. And... I don't think I knew at the time that I thought they were sort of referencing it, but I didn't realize it was intended as some sort of actual remake of Silent Night, Deadly Night. Now, the the, the thing with this is I'm fine calling this or, or sort of viewing this as part of the series because realistically, once you get outside of those first two movies, even, even part three that deals with Ricky, it's not like these movies have this great continuity and then suddenly they think everything's a loose remake, right? Yeah. And I think the main thing is, is there are actual scenes that were That's, remade yes. from the original too in this. There are scenes and it feels like those were done more as homage though, than to have some sort mm. of major connective point. But um, yeah, I, so I actually like the movie and I actually think the movie's pretty well done and I like the cast here and I like, the way the movie is structured. Now you talked about Italian. This one is much more of a slasher. It actually kind of goes, uh, thematically speaking, has almost a giallo sort of feel to it, or would have a giallo feel to it if they didn't move it sort of like this midwestern town yeah. and have that really crappy looking, like I shot this through a green bottle look, of exactly like cooled out filters and stuff like that, where it is not very cinematic. And I think has only succeeded in making movies look a little bit cheap from this this time frame, and that's my biggest problem because the movie doesn't feel very Christmassy at all. Uh, you know, in terms of even though it takes place at Christmas and you've got the Santa angle, but here we are in this midwestern town. There's no 
uh, you, you're not seeing the snow on the ground or anything like that. And then the, it's, it doesn't have the nice warm colors uh, that a Christmas Evil or even the original film have. It doesn't ever get that visual feel of Christmas down. It's, to me, that's a big problem. But I do like Jamie, uh, is it Jamie King in this film? She's a lot of fun, I think. Malcolm McDowell is the, uh, he's the sheriff who's heading up uh, the investigation into this person who's killing people, the Santa figure that's killing people. And he's fun too. I mean, he's playing like over the top Malcolm McDowell. This is post both of his uh, appearances as Dr. Loomis in Halloween. And he is kind of doing, he's, he's giving the kind of performance that a Latter-day Donald Pleasance would have given too, you know? <laughs> yes. there's, there's a moment when, when uh, Jamie King's character is trying to sort of suggest to her fellow law enforcement that this might not be as cut and dry. The person you think is the obvious suspect. Although to be fair, she's the one that pinpointed him and targeted him and said, it's this guy. And then she's like, well, wait a minute. And as she starts to give reasons and nuances, that's when that's when uh, Malcolm McDowell stops her and says something like, stop trying to put avocado, avocado on the burger. Keep it simple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, stop trying to do actual police work. Right. Right. No, I think it's a fun cast. And you've even got like um, Ellen Wong from like uh, Scott Pilgrim. And I think she was in the void, too. Yes. It's a fun cast, I think, from start to finish. And that opening is... I think this one again, we talk about openings. I think the opening is really a good tone setter and letting you know what you're in for. And then we get a scene just a little later on. We don't have to wait a whole lot longer when this bratty little girl really gets hers. And that's kind of <laughs> funny to see the fallout from that when her mom is, what is she? Is she at the police station or she's talking to the a sheriff or something and she's like you know i was thinking about boarding school and all this stuff but <laughs> she... yeah it's a, such a weird scene and and you know this this is what i will say about this movie is that this one is going to give you the gore and the kills in an extremely graphic way this is yeah like, and i think i mentioned the last movie was the best gore to that point in the series but this is uh, i don't know if it's the best score but it's definitely the most gory the most grisly yeah and there's there's scenes here where you're like Ugh, I, that's rough. There's this scene involving a wood chipper, which is basically, you know, you start to see, you think this is awful. I can't believe we're kind of going here, but we certainly do. I think here is where we absolutely still are getting that feel of the same type of slasher films we would see around this time. I think it's very much like that grittiness, like you said, and I think you brought up a great point. I think I would have liked to see have a little more of a Christmas feel to this thing. And I think they could have done a good job about that because even though it's set at Christmas, there's this Santa parade and all this stuff. Not really. It doesn't really feel like a Christmas movie at any point, And there's so much Christmas throughout it. Another piece of the, uh, the cast that I like is I like who's that Jamie King, her interactions with her parents, I think are pretty, pretty fun and add a nice touch to it and give us some kind of human characters to this, you know, You've got Malcolm McDowell going off over the top like he is want to do. But I think there's some real grounding in this movie. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because we have this thing where it's like, guess the killer. And we have multiple kinds of Santas, right? Because we have yeah. the one major Santa killer. A lot of bad Santas. Out there. Then we have Donald Logue, which is just like jackass Santa, right? Yep. Yep. He's the bad Santa. like, the, And then you've got these, these Santas that 
you know, what they're involved in engaging in makes them major suspects. So I, I think that that part is all fun. What I like about the movie, though, is it is just sort of a straightforward, it is what it is sort of slasher movie. It's got some, it's decently paced. It's got some good thrills. You do have Santa with a flamethrower at one point, and they kind of work that into the story. I thought, what did you think? Because I think actually on the strengths of the movie, I think it's awkwardly handled at points. But I actually think the strengths of the movie is that the mystery is relatively engaging and presented in a way where it's not 100% obvious or wasn't to me exactly where it was going to go. No, and I didn't have any idea where it was going to go. I don't think I could have guessed where it was going to go. Anything, despite anything else, you know, my issues with any kind of dialogue or the way the film was shot. I think the story is pretty good. And I I don't think I mean, I think they do a good job of mentioning it a couple of times throughout the movie. They reference here and there what we actually get. And I, I can't remember what they're referencing. How many years before that does that take place? Was that in 1984? Did they say something about that being in 1984? Oh, I don't remember exactly, but that would be interesting to find out if it is that I, same. I can't remember. They said it. They said a date, and I don't know if it was like 10 years ago or if they said like 1984, but I, I can't remember at this point. No, I'm not entirely certain either. But either way, yes, I think you make a good point with the story. I think the story is pretty good. And again, I don't think you're going to guess where it goes. And it's just... It's a brutal movie, but there's nice moments with some there are, there are some really bad Santas out there. You know, I think if anything, this movie taught us that. But <laughs> what else do you want to talk about on this one? I really don't have a lot. I think this is pretty straightforward. I think it does sit completely aside from the older film. I do think that had it been just a few even a few years later, you would have seen the style on the movie look a little differently. To me, the thing that holds the movie back is a certain lack of style that, you know, that, or that it's using a style that I don't think is uh, entirely successful for, for the movie and the story that it's telling. I mean, that's the, I think that's why I just don't have a whole lot to say on this. It's just so straightforward, but uh, you know, it's not bad as far as, this type of movie from this era, there's a lot of more of these movies that grade on me than this one does. I think you get a lot of good, a lot of good kills and stuff in this one. I think you've got a decent enough story and some good characters to kind of package it all up. Now I'm, I'm going to guess that I'm a little lower on this one than you, Nathan. I think I would come in around a six on this movie, but I still think it's definitely worth a watch and not skipping because I don't even think I connected the dots of this one being in the franchise. No, we're actually right on, we're uh, right in sync with this one. I'm a six as well. And I think that uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. I, uh, but it isn't also, it's also another one. I don't know that I would return to very much. It's sort of a one-time watch for me, I think. I do think, and some of that is down to, I just really don't like the way that the movie looks or is shot in that way. It's not that it looks excessively cheap, but I think, that it, uh, it, it, the setting itself doesn't pop, which is uh, unfortunate. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's my biggest complaint too. But all right, well, I, I think that's a wrap on Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, that's six films we've went so. into. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's all wrapped up and nice for you for your uh, for a Christmas gift for you this year. 
I mean, I'm sure we'll reconvene on one of these franchise. We've talked back and forth about doing some more of these, but Nathan, I really appreciate you coming on the episode and talking through this series. Um, but do you want to go ahead and give plugs as far as where can people find you if they don't know already? Yeah, sure. Uh, so you can find me over at Phantom Galaxy at it's a Phantom Galaxy Podbean.com. You can find it at most places where you get your uh, podcatchers and your uh, podcasts. It's uh, you go over and find an Apple podcast. I would ask too, you know, the same for Trey Show. Go over to Apple Podcasts and and give us a rating, and preferably a, a high rating. But I I uh, do a show Phantom Galaxy with Bill. Van Vagel, my co-host there, and we also do a lot of, uh, you know, sort of spin-off pieces of Phantom Galaxy. We do Illustrated Fan, which I do with Dave Becker, and I do Phantom Video, which is a project that at the point that you're hearing this episode here in December, that we are, uh, we've tried a handful of episodes and we're getting ready to kind of launch that in the new year into its own show that will have its own feed and everything. So keep a lookout for Phantom Video. And for for the foreseeable future, we will also probably be dropping those episodes on Phantom Galaxy uh, for a while to, to until we switch it over completely. But it will have its own feed, its own Facebook group, things like that. So, yeah, that's where you can find me. Also, do Strange Frequencies with Bill there under the Phantom Galaxy umbrella. And every once in a while, you can find me here at, at uh, Screaming Through the Ages and and... Uh, various other podcasts I'll pop in from time to time. Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't yet, I'm sure, I mean, you've been on this podcast enough times that you probably, people have probably checked you out, but if you haven't yet, um, check out some stuff over there on Phantom Galaxy and especially Phantom Video, um, which we have a lot of fun putting those together. As far as this, I'm not going to, just like I did with this one, I'm not going to come out and say which series I'm going to do next to cap off my little run on the series reviews, but I may put out a little teaser to have you guess or something. Um, I do want to plug after this, you know, after this next episode drops, I am going to be doing my best of 2022. And there's a little bit of a giveaway going on. I do have copies you know, that 4K Blu-ray of The Lost Boys and a Blu-ray copy of The Black Phone to give away. To get those and be eligible, all you need to do is drop me, you know, your top 10, your top five, your whatever top horror movies of 2022. And I will go over those on the show and kind of run down what everyone thinks as a whole. But yeah, to be entered in those, that's all you really need to do. Really simple. You can send those in an email. You can Hit me up on social media for those. However you need to get those to me, you can. You can find the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. You can join the Facebook group over on Facebook, and it's just Screaming Through the Ages. Uh, you can send the podcast an email at Screaming Through the Ages at Yahoo.com. You can find the podcast over on the website where all the episodes are housed, ScreamingThroughTheAges.com. And... I think that's about it. You know, if you're liking the show, appreciate it if you'd go over and leave a review or tell your friends. And the same with Phantom Galaxy. If you're liking that show, just spread the good word about the podcast we do because we love doing it and we love for more people to hear them. So with that being said, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next biweekly horror movie history lesson.